Mike Lovell IQ is 109. 100. 145. 122. 182. 183. 187. And now that he's a member of the Committee on Foreign Relations, it is indeed a special privilege. Few other legislators have his knowledge of the Constitution, so it is not at all surprising that he chairs the Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution. Great to see you back here in Dallas. Jim, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. So let's draw on what clearly is your expertise, the Constitution. What did the framers have in mind regarding the role of the Senate vis-a-vis foreign policy? Well, you know, the Senate has a a unique role in foreign policy. First of all, with regard to confirmations, whether it is confirmations for the Secretary of State, for any cabinet position, for sub-cabinet position, for ambassadors, uh, no one can be confirmed without receiving a majority vote in the Senate. The House does not participate in the confirmation process. Uh, Number two, for treaties. Treaties, likewise go directly to the Senate for a two-thirds vote to ratify them. Once again, the framers assign that role. The House doesn't participate in treaties either. And and I think the framers envisioned the Senate as providing, uh, you know, there was an analogy Washington used of of the Senate as as the saucer uh, and and the House as the teacup, and and the saucer would cool the hot tea of the moment. Uh, And I think the Senate has a responsibility to think long-term about the foreign policy interests Uh, of the United States, about the national security interest of the United States, and and that's a role at times the Senate has fulfilled, at other times uh, I think the Senate has been uh, too quick to to cede that authority of the executive. More recently, it does seem like they've really abdicated that authority. One of the principal authorities on foreign policy given to Congress, this to both the House and Senate, is declaring war. Under the Constitution, it is only the Congress that can declare war, and unfortunately, We've seen, frankly, both parties in Congress far too willing to leave questions of war making to the executive. Now, there is a dual power to be sure. Uh, The president is the commander in chief, and and that constitutional role gives the president substantial war making authority, particularly dealing with exigent circumstances. And so the president has inherent authority under Article II to protect our soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines in in the field and, and to respond to an imminent attack. But for long-term, prolonged military conflict, it is necessary to have either a declaration of war or an authorization of military force. And and I think too many members of Congress view it as politically convenient not to have to address such matters and to leave it instead to the president. I think that's unfortunate. I think it is far better to have a vigorous Senate and a vigorous Congress in charge of whether or not we go to war. The committee had always been known for working in a bipartisan manner, and yet now it appears that quite often it doesn't. Is there a sense among you and your colleagues that you need to try to cooperate in a different fashion than you have, say, in the last two administrations? Foreign policy and national security is an area where we have seen bipartisan cooperation and often significant bipartisan cooperation. The first bill I ever authored that passed into law was in 2013, the first year I was in the Senate. It was a foreign policy bill. It concerned Hamid Abu Dhabi, who Iran had nominated to be ambassador to the United Nations. Mm-hmm. 
Problem is, Abu Dhabi is a known terrorist. He had participated in holding Americans hostage in 1979 and 1980 as part of the Iran hostage crisis. People were wringing their hands saying there's nothing we can do about it. And I introduced legislation that gave the federal government the authority to deny a diplomatic visa to someone who was a known terrorist. That legislation passed both houses of Congress and President Obama signed it into law and we blocked Abu Dhabi from coming in. That's an example where we got widespread bipartisan cooperation. Now, I'll give you another example much more recently, which is just a few weeks ago, a bill that I introduced just passed out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and it deals with what's called Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 is a pipeline that is being constructed, a natural gas pipeline that would go from Russia to Germany. And that pipeline, I think, is a serious threat to our national security, but also to the national security of Europe. What it enables, it essentially enriches Russia. If you look at Russia and if you look at Putin right now, Putin is effectively a petro-tyrant. He uses oil and natural gas to enrich his military aggression. And the Nord Stream 2 pipeline makes Europe very dependent on Russian natural gas. I introduced legislation that is designed to be targeted sanctions to stop the Nord Stream 2 bill from being constructed. And it is specifically directed at the ships that lay deep sea pipe. And, and as it so happens, there are only five companies on the face of the planet that have the technology to lay the pipe deep enough to complete the Nord Stream 2. And, and right now there are two European companies that Russia has contracted with to build the pipeline. My legislation imposes sanctions on those companies or anyone else who builds that pipeline. And we just took it up in the Foreign Relations Committee and it passed 20 to two. Now that was an overwhelming bipartisan vote of support and I'm hopeful that when Congress gets back in session in September that we take it up and pass it into law. My objective is to stop this pipeline from being built, which is unambiguously good for Europe, it's unambiguously good for the United States, and it's unambiguously bad for Russia. I really enjoyed watching the speech that you gave a few weeks ago at the American Enterprise Institute and encourage our listeners to go to AEI's site and watch it. And in that speech, in your remarks, you described your foreign policy philosophy as a non-interventionist hawk. Put some flesh on that for me. I think for a long time people have viewed foreign policy, particularly foreign policy on the Republican side of the aisle, as divided between two poles. That one is either an aggressive interventionist, eagerly looking to use U.S. military force to spread democracy, to fight for American values and ideals. Which is what we saw in Iraq. You know, that's a view associated with John McCain. At times it's been associated with people like Lindsey Graham, like Marco Rubio, like Tom Cotton. I think those are all exemplars of an active interventionist foreign policy. On the other hand, there's another view, an isolationist view, which is extraordinarily reluctant to use military forces and essentially wants to retreat to our shores and leave the world to do what it will. Uh, and that's probably best exemplified by Rand Paul. I think both of those approaches are misguided. I don't think they're the right approach. I believe U.S. foreign policy should be guided by the central touchstone of the vital national security interest of the United States. That means we should be exceptionally reluctant to use military force, we should not use military force unless it is protecting our vital national security interest, but if and when we need to use it, we should use overwhelming force and win. Now, what does that mean in practice? Because that's very theoretical. Let's take some specific examples. 
If you look at when the Obama administration wanted to go in into Syria and engage in military force there, I kept an open mind initially to, to, to hear the Commander-in-Chief's justification as to why this was in U.S. national security interest. Ultimately, I didn't hear a, a clear and coherent defense, and so I opposed using military force in Syria. Likewise, when the Obama administration used military force in Libya and toppled the government in Libya, toppled Gaddafi, that result was unambiguously bad for U.S. foreign policy. As bad as Gaddafi was, and he was a bad, bad guy, we got rid of one bad guy and ended up handing it over to radical Islamic warlords who made the U.S. more dangerous. Same thing is true in, in, in Iraq. As bad as Saddam Hussein was, handing it over to ISIS was a bad outcome. I think those interventions were, were not justified, they were mistakes. On the other hand, you mentioned Iran. I think Iran, the Ayatollah Khamenei, who chants death to America and who I believe means it, I think the threat of a religious zealot who, who wants to murder Americans acquiring nuclear weapons is a clear national security interest to the United States, and so I have been leading the efforts for maximum pressure to mean maximum pressure that we do everything necessary to stop Iran from getting nuclear, nuclear weapons. That's what I mean by a non-interventionist talk. You're very reluctant to use military force, but when it comes to saving the lives of Americans, the commander-in-chief should be absolutely willing to use every tool we have available to keep America safe. One of the issues that's certainly going to be addressed probably when you come back after your recess is U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Yeah. And there have certainly been some very strong opposition to what may be the president's policy from Ryan Crocker. Just this week, Secretary Panetta had an article. Where do you stand on removal of troops in Afghanistan? My very first trip abroad after I was sworn into the Senate in 2013 was to go to Afghanistan and to meet with the troops there. And I will say we have seen so many heroic men and women fighting for our country, defending this nation, and, and we've killed a lot of bad guys there. An awful lot of terrorists came to Afghanistan and engaged with our troops. I think it is better for them to be engaging with our military than for them to be targeting our civilians. So I think that was positive. That being said, we have been there an awful long time. And I am quite sympathetic to the arguments that it's time to go home. It is not the job of our military to engage in nation building. Our, our job shouldn't be trying to turn Afghanistan or every other, any other country into this democratic utopia. Our job should be to protect the United States of America. Now, there is an important counterterrorism mission that right now we base out of Afghanistan and use actually many of the military conflicts dealing with al-Qaeda or, or al-Nusra or ISIS or other radical Islamic terrorists. Many of them are in Pakistan, but we're basing it out of Afghanistan. That mission needs to continue. If we have terrorists who are targeting the United States, we need to continue to engage with them. We have seen too many soldiers injured and killed in Afghanistan, and I think having a large troop presence on the ground, I, I think it's time to look at scaling that back, and, and, and I think that's the direction the president's going. But then just a week ago or so, you had that situation where over 60 people were murdered at that wedding, and that wasn't Taliban, that was ISIS. Indeed, and listen, we ain't gonna turn Afghanistan into Switzerland. And if we think we are, we're misguided. I'm not willing to put your children or my children in harm's way to promote peace and utopia across the globe. I am willing to see our military stand up and risk their lives to keep 
American citizens safe, to defend our nation. That's why people sign up and take that oath to the Constitution, because they want to defend America. And so that attack at the wedding was horrific, and that poor family and those killed. But at the end of the day, our job is not to be the world's policemen. The job of the military is to protect America, and that's what we need to stay focused on. Senator, I want to thank you, as always, for being our guest, being in Dallas. And I want to thank all of you for listening to Global IQ with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ on iTunes, Stitcher, or on your favorite app. And special thanks to my longtime producers, Kara Sheckman and Kayla Smith, and research assistant, Andrew Neerthree. And with that, what's your Global IQ?